The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. My name is Jeff Counts. I'm your host. I'm joined today by Paul Meacham, new CEO of Utah Symphony Utah Opera. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Jeff. Great to have you. So let's dive right in. You began, as people can tell by your voice, your career in Britain, but you've had a very distinguished professional run in the United States. Are there any enduring themes or lessons from the American orchestral music world that you can put into words now, looking back on your career so far? Well, I've been fortunate enough to work with you know some of the finest ensembles in the country, including, of course, the Utah Symphony, the New York Philharmonic, the San Francisco Symphony, Seattle Symphony, and, and most recently, the Baltimore Symphony. And I would say that all of them share uh, a, you know, two or three kind of traits that you would want in a really top-flight ensemble. Uh, the first is a commitment to excellence, artistic excellence, um, not cutting corners. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your th- there is a a a sense that you are really uh, striving for the very best every single performance. And though that may sound obvious, you'll be surprised how, um, you know, because of finances or other reasons, that there's a temptation to cut corners. But American orchestras, or certainly the ones I've worked for, um, make sure that that doesn't happen. The other thing is I think that there's a a great, the most successful ensembles, and Utah certainly comes into this category, um, really understand their community, their connection with their community, and uh, what their community is looking to them uh, to provide, not just in terms of the quality of the performances, but also the interaction with schools, children, education programs. And I've been very impressed, particularly here. Uh, it was a very strong program in Baltimore as well, uh, of um, understanding the, the particular needs of the community, sometimes you know, underserved children, not always, um, and finding uh, how a symphony and an opera company can serve those needs. The, um, the the striving for excellence, I'm sure, is echoed in all of the European ensembles as well. But is that latter point, the point about outreach, is that is that unique to the U.S. or I, more common? I think it's more common. Yeah. I mean, certainly in the U.K., it, there's there's a fair amount of that kind of work mm-hmm. as well. Um, I mean, I think anywhere where whether it's public tax dollars or private tax dollars. Uh, people have choices to make, you know, whether it's uh, politicians, legislators approving appropriations for funding mm-hmm. or individual donors or corporate donors. Um, they want to see their investment uh, really, uh, the, the, the dollars go the extra mile. And sure. I think certainly, particularly in today today's economic climate, people want to see... Um, you know, people want to see organizations like ours really connect with the broad spectrum of the community's needs, not just, you know, what does it take to put on a great performance? Sure, sure. Well, I, I, I want to jump into the, to the, to the toughest question right now and put you on the spot a little bit because I know that you're aware of this as much as anybody with your, with your uh, experience, but a lot of ink, a lot of time is spent on the discussion of the the death of the American orchestra and how the we're in a serious decline in this industry, I'd I'd love to know your take on that. Is are we as doomed as people say? 
Absolutely not. That's good news. Um, Next question. No, no. <laughs> please, please expand. Well, I, you know, I think, um, I think orchestras, managements, musicians, music directors, uh, ha- are being challenged to uh, think creatively, innovatively, uh, to meet, you know, the expectations of new generations. Sure. Um, but as long as they stay re- relevant and i think relevance is, is a word that's overused but i think in this co- in this Agreed. context it's yeah. it's important that um what we do on the stage as well as in the community um is relevant to how uh, this community in this case here in salt lake city how we um uh, how we're perceived and i think um you know i'd say that that of course uh you know the world doesn't stand still, and you know a hundred years ago, probably most homes had a piano in the in the home, and now they don't. Right. So you have to you have to adapt, but the music is as great. Um, you know, Beethoven still remains two hundred years on. You know, the greatest some of the greatest music ever written, and uh, I certainly think today there's some very interesting, innovative new music that's been written as well, which perhaps actually is more. Um, uh, you know, is is perhaps easier uh, for audiences to uh, accept than perhaps some of the new music that was written 30 or 40 years ago. So I'm certain that probably there was a an article written 50 years ago and 100 years ago that said the same thing. Absolutely. Uh, there are always going to be doomsayers of in course. our world, but I'm an optimist. Yes. So, so if I could paraphrase, changing, yes, dying, no. I think that's a good way of yeah. describing it. So as CEO, um, you, you know, People may not fully understand what that means in the nonprofit world, but it, to me it means boss. And I know that you spend a lot of time looking at bottom lines probably. You do spend a lot of time thinking about dollars and numbers. What's your programming philosophy as it relates to popularity? Where is that balance point between the art and the marketing? Well, the, the way you said marketing, you made it sound like a dirty word. It's not a dirty word. I think the, the, you have to know how to communicate. Yeah. To your uh, to your audience, um, there's so much noise out there mm-hmm. that if you can't reach people with with a message, uh, they're not going to know about you. Um, but I think the important thing is not so much the popularity as as the passion that is behind the programming, the music director's vision, the passion of the musicians. If that passion is evident to the audience, with the help of a a, a messaging marketing mm-hmm. um then um then there's there's it's not a question of having to be popular to sell or not popular and it won't sell it's the passion that's behind it so if there's if there's an unusual um unusual repertoire but it's but it's uh, but it's conveyed uh, th- there's real passion behind it then uh, it will do just as well if not better than Vivaldi Four Seasons does uh, it also go back to that excellence you were speaking about early on well I think it does I yeah. think I think um, I remember an example of um, of a work by a Swiss composer Arthur Oniger mm. uh, it's called Joan of Arc at the Stake yes and uh, in Baltimore we did this with Marin Alsop uh, the music director there and we were very worried about uh, an all evening work that, that was in French and, and just maybe know, not well known maybe not well known yeah. exactly but we we mounted a, a very interesting marketing campaign about martyrdom and about 
<clears throat> a, you know, a woman, a young woman in, in 600 years ago who was a soldier, um, and it really caught fire, and it sold, it was like, it's still to this day, I think, and this was seven or eight years ago, now still to this day, it sold more single tickets than any other concert in the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra's history. That's so incredible. I think marketing, marketing can help where uh, explanation is required and where the passion behind why to do a piece like that in the first place can be conveyed. Mm -hmm. I, I should say for my colleagues in the marketing department here at Utah Symphony, I didn't mean it as a dirty word, just a word. So hopefully they'll forgive me. Uh, you recall we spoke to Terry Fisher on a previous episode of the Ghostlight Podcast, and we talked a lot about his programming philosophy and how he approaches season planning. People may not know how the relationship between a CEO and a music director works. And you've had a lot of experience with this. How does it work? Well, um, it needs, to, I mean, the relationship to be truly successful, um, there has to be a combination of agreement and, and disagreement. And, and <laughs> let me explain that. Sure. Um, you know, if, if, if they get on so well that they agree on everything, the, the likely results could be a little one-dimensional. Mm -hmm. um, I think to be the most successful relationship, you, you obviously need to get on well with each other, but you respect, you respect differences of opinion. And sometimes, you know, a music director has come up with an idea that, that you know, like the one I just mentioned, the Onega Joan of Arc, and my, my initial reaction was, oh, my goodness, how are we going to sell that? Sure. But then I could see... The degree of passion and, and rationale and why they wanted to do this piece. And I thought, you know what? This sounds like a good idea. Let's make it work. And there are other times where the music director will come up with an idea and I just think, you know, that is just, there's no amount of passion and no amount of marketing that's ever going to make, you know, and, and so sometimes we, the time's just not right. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, you know, you, it's a give and take. Uh, I, I think what, what, what remains always is the, the level of respect for each other. I have nothing. I mean, I never wanted to be a music director. I couldn't be a music director. And so I have no desires to sort of get in, get into Terry Fisher's territory and I'm sure he feels the same way about a CEO mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. we we respect each other in our positions and we collaborate a lot uh, and mostly we agree, but sometimes we happily disagree. You've only you've only just arrived a few months ago, but you've already had opportunities to work with Maestro well, Fisher. Absolutely. And, yeah. I mean, we you know I was appointed back in February, so right. although I couldn't start until July, we were in constant conversation mm -hmm. since the beginning of the building year. the relationship. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Um, speaking of conductors, you've worked with a lot of great ones in your career, and you've had amazing collaborative experiences with all sorts of artists with your years in the business. Do you have any stories about favorite projects from your past? Something like the Joan of Arc story, I'm sure, would, would rate. Any secrets also you're going to tell us? Secrets. Well, <laughs> certainly um, in terms of great projects, I think uh, in 2008, uh, Marin Alsop and the Baltimore Symphony uh, mounted a production of Bernstein's Mass. Mm -hmm. And it was performed not only in Baltimore and recorded uh, in a, in a Grammy-nominated recording, uh, but it was also performed at Carnegie Hall and then at the Kennedy Center where the piece was first written right. back in 1971. And I think it had been done once since mm -hmm. then, but the yeah. work has certainly um, uh, picked up, I think, in terms of popularity. With but the for a while, year, sure. Well, yeah. but I think for a while it was considered one of Bernstein's problem pieces. Mm -hmm. And Marin Alsop has been a champion of mm -hmm. Bernstein's. I mean, she was, he, she was mentored by him. And so she um, mounted this, and it was a spectacular production, and it, it played the sold-out houses in Baltimore and, and New York and 
um, ending at the Kennedy Center. And this was just a few weeks after after 9-11, and, um, the 9-11 anniversary and uh, in 2008. And I remember... No, I'm sorry, not, not 9-11, I apologize, the economic recession. Right. And, you know, just about every other performance that Baltimore was performing around that time before and afterwards, people were staying away, but not the Bernstein Mass. Really? It, it sold out very quickly. There was a message there they were ready to hear. Maybe. I, th- I think so. Yeah. Um, other other performances, I you know, more recently, um, uh, Baltimore um mounted a production of John Waters' Hairspray, the musical. John Waters is a native of Baltimore. And and it was a full Broadway cast, and it was spectacularly, spectacularly sensational and glamorous. It was, and very funny. Um, I bet it was standing room only, too. It certainly was. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the other thing I would, going back a little bit into my own history, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I started out as as a CEO running an orchestra in London called the London Sinfonietta, Mm -hmm. which specialized in in what was then 20th century music. I guess it would be 21st century music now. Sure. And... You know, in that role, uh, I was fortunate enough to come across a lot of great composers. Um, and one of them, John Adams, an American composer, uh, wrote a piece that, that uh, we'd been uh, asking him to write for a number of years uh, for the great clarinetist of the orchestra, uh, a guy by the name of Michael Collins. Uh, the, it was a clarinet concerto. It was called Gnarly Buttons. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I feel uh, a little bit of... of uh, pride there that that actually came came to happen i think simply because i maintained a very and still to this day a very strong relationship with john and uh and i think uh, he was probably sick and tired of hearing me say no when are we going to get this sure. commission sure um the the and another very happy memory was with uh, the english composer uh, harrison burtwistle mm-hmm. And he composed an opera for Covent Garden. It was called Gawain and the Green Knight. And I just happened to be there for one of the performances uh, when um, you know, I was sitting down in the orchestra section and then sitting down right in front was the composer himself, mm-hmm. Sir Harrison Burtwistle. And I knew him quite well through through my relationship at the London Sinfonietta. And at the end of the first half, and it was a sensational first half, and my, I was pinned to the back of my seat just by this incredible wall of sound. Uh, it's his, he has a very unique sound world. And he stood up, and he talks in a, in a very northern English accent from Lancashire. And he turned around, and he looked at me and said, not bad, eh? <laughs> Meaning not not bad at all. Yeah. And and you know that was his way of saying you know, um, you know if I can say so as the composer, sure. I'm pretty proud of this. Sure. And it was it was uh, phenomenal. Oh, that's great. Um, so, I have to say, for my part, uh, one of the ways in college that I got to know important music of the 20th century was London Sinfonietta recordings. Mm-hmm. And I know now that you were there during those days, and it's a pretty cool full circle It was, it for was me. a heady time. Yeah. So one question we always ask guests on the Ghostlight Podcast is whether or not they've ever seen a ghost. Do you have a ghost story for us, Paul? Well, I don't really have a ghost story, but I have something that's close to it. And uh, I was at the Glyndebourne Opera House back in the early 1980s, which shows my age. And there was a production of Benjamin Britten's Midsummer Night's Dream by the great British director Sir Peter Hall. And it was in the old Glyndebourne Opera House. Uh, for anybody who's been to the Glyndebourne today, they, they've built a brand new opera house, which is beautiful. But this was in the old house, and, and they um, everything was dark inside, and, and it was perfect for... Midsummer Night's Dream, because you you know it's set obviously in, in at night time in in this mythical wood, 
And you know, the stage set had some trees on it, and and the opera started, and it's, it's beautiful music. Um, and the actors, they've started their arias and so on and so forth. And then after about 15 or 20 minutes, the trees started moving. And I realized all this time that actors have been, you know, in tree-like poses in very dark garb. Wow. Uh, and it was probably not a ghost story, but yeah. it was magical. I bet. As you would want in a Midsummer Night's Dream. Absolutely. And my heart stopped. I bet. Um, I, I couldn't, you know, nobody prepared for, prepared me for it, thank goodness. So it was a total surprise. Sure. And it was probably to this day the most magical thing I've ever seen a, on an opera house stage. Probably also one of the more frightening for at least a second or two. <laughs> right, exactly. So not quite a ghost story, but no, something it, something paranormal maybe. It's Paul Meacham, thank you so much for joining us on the Ghostlight Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Tomorrow night, the Utah Symphony performs the 57th annual Salute to Youth concert, featuring some of our community's most talented young musicians performing movements from Concerti with the Utah Symphony. Then the orchestra heads down to Southern Utah for education concerts and a performance in Cedar City at Southern Utah University. Tickets and information are available at utahsymphony.org. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced by Chad Call. Utah Symphony, Utah Opera's season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dory Eccles Foundation.